Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, September the 25th, uh, 2022. Uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of our program. Later on in the in the episode, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the African Continental Free Trade Area program to fund programs which directly benefit women and youth. The Global South representatives at the United Nations General Assembly 77th session have continued to criticize the lack of solidarity from the Western industrialized states. Sal Tomei and Principe is holding uh, national elections this weekend. We'll have details on that as well. And more excerpts uh, from a memoir on the early phases of Kenyan independence has generated interest throughout the East Africa region. In the second and third hours, we return to the speeches of leaders at the United Nations General Assembly 77th session that is being held uh, this week uh, at the um, uh, UN uh, uh, headquarters at, uh, in New York City. We will hear addresses uh, from the Russian Federation, Chad, uh, Malawi, the Republic of Zimbabwe, and the Republic of Namibia. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We're going to take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Mali. Uh, with the music of Amadou and Miriam. Don't 
Mbena kumato poja ma Mana dominga sila Ukaya fama Dominga sila Uka haketo Musolu yote ulo Musolu aename Musolu ninyoko Musolu mbaulati Musolu yote ulo Musolu aename Musolu yote ninyoko Musolu mbaulati Musolu Demulo musolu yo Aumana demulo Aukanafini Musolu Demulo musolu yo Aumana kona soro Aukanatine Kubapini Miningo yola Kubapini Minango yola Kubapini Kulungu Dingeo kono Kubapini Nyamango nyorola Kubapini Kwake Dingeo kono Kubapini Miningo yola Musolu Musolu mbauladi, musolu yo, mali musolu ayine, musolu senegali musolu ayemiri, musolu yo, lagine musolu ayename, musolu maritani musolu ayemiri, musolu yo, nijeri musolu ayine, musolu alijeri musolu ayename, musolu yo, gaba musolu ayine, musolu nenyoka musolu ayemiri, musolu demulo musolu yo, au manade. Musolu, 
Nimbe alako, 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program. Uh, We just heard the music of Amadou and Maryam from uh, the West African state of the Republic of Mali. And uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the memoir that has been released, uh, that has been serialized uh, by the Kenyan Sunday Nation and Daily Nation uh, newspapers. Um, Of course, uh, this memoir deals uh, with some of the early uh, pioneers of Kenyan independence, uh, such as Odinga Odinga, as well as uh, Jomo Kenyatta, and a number of other uh, forces uh, that were actually instrumental in the independence struggle and the post-independence period in the East African state of Kenya. And of course, uh, today, Kenya is the largest economy uh, in the East Africa region. Uh, There is a newly elected president, uh, William Ruto, and uh, he delivered a uh, substantial policy address uh, at uh, the United Nations General Assembly uh, 77th session, uh, which Uh, we have been covering here at the Pan-African Journal. We will continue to cover it uh, during the course uh, of uh, this program. And uh, the African Continental Free Trade Area also is building a fund and drafting a protocol to ensure participation of more women and youth in commerce. Now, this week, the African Free Trade, African Continental Free Trade Area Secretary General Wamkele Mene uh, said the fund created through the Zimbank and known as the AFTA Adjustment Facility will be used to cushion countries from short-term revenue losses once they lift tariff barriers for cross-border trade. The tariffs, which include licenses, uh, permit fees, and taxes, have been cited among the challenges limiting free trade and the participation of women and youth. This is besides the access to credit, market information, as well as infrastructure. Some 
One billion U.S. dollars has already been raised towards the facility. The African uh, Continental Free Trade Area says the target is between seven billion and ten billion U.S. dollars, reflecting just how important uh, lifting the protectionist policies will be for trade to thrive on the African continent. And you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. This is the Pan African Newswire segment of our program. Also at the United Nations General Assembly, the United Nations was established on one simple notion above all others. Working together is better than going it alone. But while the term multilateralism uh, might be trending at this year's UN General Assembly, some leaders are calling out the heads of richer nations, uh, whether it's the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic or climate change. Uh, developing countries say it seems that richer nations are thinking of, them, of themselves first and not the world's most vulnerable. The global economy is now a house on fire, yet we continue to use evacuation methods that rush some nations out to safety while leaving the rest of us behind to fend for ourselves in the burning building. That's according to Malawi's president, Lazarus Shaquiri. But if we are truly one UN family, then leaving no one behind has to be practiced, not just preached. Now, the United Republic of Tanzania's vice president, Philippe Isdor Mpango, was even more blunt. He said that, quote, unilateralism driven uh, by greed is leading us, rich and poor, strong and weak, to a catastrophe, unquote. When the United Nations was established in 1945, world leaders hoped it would make sure that something like World War II never happened again. Over the years, its mandate has tackled everything from nuclear proliferation to protecting refugees. But that high-minded notion of multilateralism has never uh, wavered, even if the reality sometimes has. Uh, Kiribati uh, President Benito Mambao Beretitindi uh, reminded member states that last week that the United Nations founders wanted to not only prevent future wars, but to improve the standard of living for all. Uh, in the African state of Sao Tome, uh, voters in Sao Tome were casting their ballots earlier today to elect the 55-member National Assembly and the mayors of the country's six municipalities. In Principe, uh, votes are also being cast uh, for the National Assembly and for the government of the autonomous region. The archipelago of 215,000 inhabitants is considered to be a model of parliamentary democracy in Africa. There are 11 political parties and movements contesting the election. For the first time, 14,692 citizens residing in 10 countries in Europe and Africa elect one member of parliament from each constituency. The remaining 53 deputies are chosen by the six districts of the island of Sao Tome and the Principe region. Jorge Bam Jesus uh, heads the current government in coalition with three other forces, the Democratic Convergence Party, the Union for Democracy and Development, and the Democratic Movement for Change. The Independent Citizens Movement, also known as the Movement of the Cal, a district in the south of the country with brothers Antonio and Nino Montero, is now running in coalition uh, with the Party of National Unity uh, from the autonomous region of Principe and wants to increase the number of MPs. After, in 2018, it debuted in Parliament with two electors. The election is being monitored by 100 international observers. 
And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go to our website at the uh, Pan-African news.blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com and of course um, if you want to have access to today's Pan-African Journal the special worldwide radio broadcast all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with our speeches and analysis uh, from the United Nations General Assembly, uh, 77th session being held now in New York City. Like for them to do to you, <laughs> forget it. It's gonna be so. 
Welcome back, and listening uh, to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, September 25th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was uh, the voice uh, and the music of uh, Donna Hightower, who uh, uh, was a preeminent uh, African-American uh, jazz, rhythm and blues, and pop singer uh, who uh, during the 1970s, uh, lived in Europe for many, many years and had uh, scored a number of hit records uh, on the uh, European continent. And that was one of them. Uh, Today's World is a Mess uh, in 1972. And of course, um, we're going to uh, right now uh, move into uh, the United Nations General Assembly, uh, 77th session that is being held. Um, uh, during these last few days uh, at uh, the UN uh, headquarters uh, in New York City. Uh, right now, we're going to listen to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who presents the position of the Russian Federation in regard uh, to the world situation, uh, the Russian special military intervention in Ukraine, and the role of the uh, European Union and the United States and NATO in their attempts to isolate the uh, Russian Federation. Uh, This position is never heard uh, almost uh, over uh, Western media, uh, whether it's in Europe, the UK, or in North America. So we're going to present in its entirety the address from uh, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov at this year's United Nations General Assembly. I now give the floor to His Excellency Sergei Lavrov, Minister for Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation. <coughs> Madam President, distinguished colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, we are meeting at a difficult, a dramatic moment. The crises are growing, and the situation in the area of international security is deteriorating rapidly. Instead of having an honest dialogue and looking for, dialogue, for, looking for compromises, what we're dealing with is disinformation, course, course stagings and provocations. The Western line here undermines the trust in international institutions as bodies where interests are agreed. It also undermines trust in international law as a guarantee for fairness and protecting the weak against the strong. The negative uh, tendencies we're witnessing within the UN in a concentrated fashion too. At the UN, which rose from the rubble of German fascism and Japanese militarism and was created to develop uh, friendly relations amongst members and to prevent conflict among them. The future of the world order is being decided today, and it is clear to any impartial objective. The question is whether or not this is going to be the kind of order with one hegemon at the head of it, uh, making everyone else living, uh, following um, uh, his notorious rules of benefit to that hegemon only, or are we going to have a democratic, fair 
world without blackmail and without uh, setting fear into the unwanted without neo-Nazism and neo-colonialism. We made a firm choice for the latter and together with partners and like-minded people uh, calling upon um, everyone to work for, the, for its implementation. What is receding into the past is a unipolar model of world development which serves the interests of the one golden billion and its uh, overconsumption level came from the resources of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Today, we're witnessing sovereign states ready to defend their national interests, and this re results in the creation of an equal, socially oriented, and sustainable multipolar architecture. But the objective geopolitical processes are being seen by Washington and fully subjugated to it. Um, the elites of Western countries are considered by them as a threat to their dominating position. The United States and allies want to stop the march of history. So at some point in the past, uh, um, uh, um, declaring that they were victorious in the Cold War, Washington erected themselves into an almost envoy of God on 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 on, on earth uh, without any obligations but only the sacred right to act with impunity wherever and wherever they want and this can be done anywhere against any state especially if they're somehow displeased the self proclaimed uh, masters of the world. We do recall the wars of aggressions very far from American shores in Yugoslavia, in Iraq, and Libya, which claimed many hundred thousands of peaceful lives. Were the truly legitimate interests of the West were impacted in any one of those countries? Was English banned or any other language of NATO countries banned there? Mass media culture? Were the Anglo-Saxons declared to be subhuman or heavy weaponry was used against them? So what is the outcome of the adventurism of the United States in the Middle East? Has a human rights situation improved? Is the rule of law better? The socioeconomic situation may perhaps have stabilized or people's livelihood is better? Name a country where Washington interfered by force and where as a result of that life improved. Trying to restore a one-polar model under the slogan of a rules-based order, West is introducing dividing lines everywhere along the lines of a confrontation between blocks. You are either with us or against us. There is no third option possible. There are no compromises. Continuing with the course to spread NATO to the east and bringing the military infrastructure of NATO to the borders of Russia, the United States now have the goal of subjugating the Asian areas. At the June summit of NATO in Madrid, the self-proclaimed defensive alliance declared the indivisible security of Euro-Atlantic and India and uh, Pacific. And under the slogan of uh, India-Pacific strategies, closed formats are being created and they undermine one has been built on the ASEAN for decades, namely an open and inclusive regional architecture. And in addition to that, they're playing with fire around Taiwan. Um, on top of that, they're promising military support to Taiwan. Clearly, the notorious Monroe Doctrine is becoming global in scope. 
Washington is trying to turn the entire world in its own, into its own backyard. And the way of doing this is through unlawful unilateral sanctions, which have been for many years used in violation of the Charter and used as a tool of political blackmail. The cynicism here is obvious because these restrictions hit civilians. They prevent them from uh, getting access to basic goods, including medication, vaccines, and food. An egregious example we have here is um, the American blockade of Cuba, more than 60 years old. The General Assembly has been for a long time and insistently demanding that be immediately lifted, and this is being done by the absolute majority of voices. The Secretary General, whose duty include helping implement General Assembly decisions, must, of course, pay special attention to this issue. The Secretary General has a special role also in mobilizing efforts to overcome food and energy crises, which resulted in the wake of an out-of-control money emission of the United States and the European Union during the pandemic, and as a result of irresponsible, unprofessional acts by the European Union in the hydrocarbon fuel markets. Despite common sense, Washington and Brussels compounded the situation when they announced economic war against Russia. As a result, there is a growing price on foodstuffs, fertilizers, oil, and gas. We welcome the efforts made by the Secretary General when they helped arrive uh, at, at the Istanbul agreements uh, on the 24th of June, but they need to be implemented. But so far, the ships with the Ukrainian grain go somewhere, but not into the poorest countries on the one hand. On the other hand, the impediments by U.S. and uh, EU, the financial and logistical impediments against our grain and fertilizers have not been lifted. Furthermore, for several weeks we have been saying that about 300,000 tons of fertilizer are being held up in European ports, and we have been proposing that they be forwarded free of charge to the, country, to the needy countries in Africa. But the European Union is not heeding this. The official Russophobia in the West is unprecedented now. The scope is grotesque. They're not shying away from declaring the intent to inflict a military uh, defeat on our country, but also to destroy and fracture Russia. In other words, what they want to do is to remove from the global map a geopolitical entity which has become all too independent. So how have Russia in the recent decades been infringing on the interests of our opponents? Is it that we cannot be forgiven for making possible the uh, military and strategic detente in the 1980s and 1990s because of my country's position? Or is it that we voluntarily dissolved the Warsaw Treaty Organization and thus removed the uh, reason for NATO's being? Is it that we supported the reunification of Germany without any preconditions and against the position of London and Paris, that we withdrew our military from Europe, Asia, from Latin America, that we recognized the independence of former Soviet republics, that we believed the promises of Western leaders not to expand, not by an inch of NATO in the East, but when it started, 
agreed to basically let legitimize it through signing a founding act between Russia and NATO. Did we infringe on the interests of the West when we warned them that it was unacceptable to bring closer a threatening military infrastructure, bring it closer to our borders? The arrogance of the West, of the West, the American exclusivity, have become particularly destructive after the end of the Cold War. Already in 1991, the Deputy Chief of Pentagon, Paul Wolfowitz, in his uh, conversation with the NATO Commander Europe, Wesley Clark, stated openly that, I quote, after the end of the Cold War, we can use our military without any fear of reprisal. We have five, maybe ten years so as to clean out the surrogate Soviet regimes, such as Iraq and Syria, until such time as there is a new superpower who can challenge us, end of quote. And I am convinced uh, that at some point in someone's memoirs, we will find out how the American strategy was being developed as regards Ukraine. But even so, Washington's plans in this regard are obvious in any event. It is possible they are not being forgiven that the request of the United States and the European Union, we supported the agreement of the Ukrainian president at the time, Mr. Yanukovych, his agreement with the forces of opposition to resolve crisis in February 2014. These agreements were guaranteed by Germany, Poland, and France. But the next morning, they were trampled underfoot by the leaders of the bloody coup who thus humiliated the European mediators. The West simply shrugged and uh, watched uh, in silence how put, uh, members of the coup started bombing the eastern of Ukraine, where people refused to accept the results of the coup watched as its organizers made uh, um, in, made into the rank of national heroes, the accomplices of uh, Nazis. Um, are we, were we expected to acquiesce in the Kiev intent to ban the Russian language, education, our mass media and culture with their insistence on chasing the Russians out of Crimea, on waging war against Donbass, whose uh, Citizens were proclaimed by the then authorities and now authorities in, Ki in Kiev, proclaimed to be not people by specimens. Is it that we violated the interests of the West because we played a role in stopping the <coughs> uh, forceful actions by the Kiev neo-Nazis in the eastern of in the east of Ukraine and then demanded that the Minsk package of measures be implemented, something that was uh, unanimously approved by the Security Council, but then laid low by Kiev with the participation of US and EU. On, for many years, we have been proposing to have security in Europe with the um, basis on equal and indivisible security enshrined at the highest level in OSCE documents. According to this principle, no one is to strengthen their own security at the expense of others. And the very last proposal to make these agreements legally binding, something that we introduced in December 2021, uh, and the reaction was an arrogant rejection of that. The incapacity of Western countries to negotiate and the continued war by the Kiev regime against their own people left us with no choice but to recognize the dependence of the Donetsk and the 
Lugansk People's Republic and start a special military operation to protect the Russian and other people on Donbass and so as to remove the threats against our security, which NATO have been consistently creating in um, Ukraine at our borders. The operation is conducted in pursuance of agreements on friendship, cooperation, mutual assistance between us and that republic and on the basis of Article 51 of the UN Charter. I'm convinced that any sovereign self-respecting state would do the same in our state, a state which understands its responsibility to his own people. The West is now throwing a fit because of the referenda which are being conducted in the Lugansk, Donetsk, Kharkov, and Zaporozh Oblast. But people living there are basically only reacting to what was said to them by the head of the Kiev regime, Mr. Zelensky, in August 2021. At the time, he said anyone who feels themselves to be Russian for the benefit of their children and grandchildren to get out and to go to Russia. And that's what the uh, inhabitants of those regions are doing, um, taking they are land with them where their ancestors have been living for hundreds of years. Any unbiased observer, I can see very clearly the Anglo-Saxons who fully subjugated Europe, for them Ukraine is just an expandable material as they are fighting against Russia. NATO uh, declared that our country is an immediate threat to on their way to total domination and a long-term threat will be the PRC. At the same time, Collective West, uh, headed by Washington, is sending frightening signals to other countries saying anyone who disobeys can be next. One of the consequences of the crusade by the West against the objectionables is the growing decline of multilateral institutions. They have been turned by the United States and allies into tools to implement their own selfish interests. This is something that is being pursued at the UN, Human Rights Council, UNESCO, and other multilateral institutions. Um, The organizational prohibition of chemical weapons has basically been privatized. Fierce attempts are being made to prevent within the Convention on Biological and Toxin Weapons of a mechanism which would ensure transparency for hundreds of military biological programs of the Pentagon has around the world, including on the perimeter of our country and throughout Eurasia. And these programs are far from harmless. This is irrefutable, according to the facts that we came to in Ukraine. There is an assertive line uh, to privatize the U.S. Secretariat, introducing into its work a neoliberal narrative which ignores the cultural and civilizational multifaceted nature of the world. We call upon um, making sure that we follow the charter and ensure a fair geographical representation of member states, making sure that there is no one single country dominant in the Secretariat. An impossible situation was uh, created by Washington having to do with the obligation of the host country of a headquarters uh, agreement to ensure normal conditions for the participation of all member states in UN work. The obligations under this host country agreement are also placed on the Secretary General, and inactivity is unacceptable. We're also concerned by the efforts made by countries who are undermining the prerogatives of the Security Council. And, of course, the Council and the UN have to be aligned to contemporary reality. 
parties. We uh, see the prospect of making the Security Council more democratic exclusively, exclusively through broadening the representation of the countries from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We note um, India and Brazil in particular as key international actors and worthy candidates for permanent membership within the Council, whilst at the same time unilaterally and mandatorily raising the profile of Africa. It is very important today to make sure that all member states unequivocally without reservations reaffirm their commitment to the purposes and principles of the Charter as a first and necessary step to restore collective responsibility for the fate of humankind. And that was the reason why in July 2021, a group of friends to support the Charter was created. And co-sponsor of the group was Russia, and it now counts uh, to uh, 20 countries. The goal here is to make sure that there is strict uh, abiding to with universal norms of international law to counterbalance unilateral approaches, and we call, call upon everyone to join in. And in this context, uh, great potential is possessed by such organizations as the, um, the Non-Aligned Movement, BRICS, SCO, and ASEAN. The Western colleagues are very aggressive in imposing their understanding of democracy as a way of organizing uh, life to all countries, categorically do not want to be guided by democratic norms in international affairs. And a very good example, the situation in Ukraine. Again, it would seem to be that Russia justified its position, has been justifying it for years, and uh, the West said they disagree. Okay. Well, let other members of the international community decide for themselves what their position would be on the side of one, on the side of others, or neutral. That's what happens in democracies when politicians opposing each other defend uh, their viewpoints and uh, try to uh, uh, convey it to others. But the United States and uh, allies do not give the freedom of choice to anyone. They threaten to twist the arms of anyone who dares think for themselves and uh, demand by threats that uh, countries join in with anti-Russian sanctions. That doesn't work very well, but it is very clear that these acts by the um, United States and its satellites is not democracy. It's pure, unadulterated dictatorship or an attempt to impose it. We're left with a strong impression that the Washington and subjugated Europe are trying to keep their disappearing hegemony using prohibited means. Diplomacy constantly is being replaced by illegal sanctions against competitors in economics, sports, information area, culture, and uh, generally in contacts with people. Let's uh, turn to the, uh, to the problem with visas for delegates for international meetings in New York, Geneva, Vienna, and Paris. There also we see the desire to remove competition, make sure that alternative viewpoints do not come into multilateral discussions. I am convinced that we need to protect the UN and uh, scrape everything that confrontational and superficial from there and give it back its reputation and an honest platform to siege for balance for all member states. And this is the approach that we're guided up when we put forward our national initiatives. It is of principal importance to make sure that we have a comprehensive, comprehensive ban 
on the deployment of weapons in space, and this is the reason for the Russia-China draft international treaty considered by the Conference on Disarmament. Um, it's particularly important to protect our cyberspace within the open-ended working group of the General Assembly on the agreements on how to protect international security and uh, to use a special committee for universal convention on how to counter uh, the use of ICT for criminal purposes purposes. We continue supporting Office on Counterterrorism and other counterterrorist uh, entities within the UN. And we go to continue um, develop uh, relationships between uh, the UN, CSTO, European Eurasian Economic uh, Union, CIS, so as to pool our efforts in the greater Eurasia. We call for uh, an enhanced work on overcoming regional conflicts. We think that the priority here is to overcome the impasse in creating an independent Palestinian state, restoring um, which was um, uh, restoring the state of Iraq and Libya destroyed by NATO aggression, neutralize the threats to Syria, um, uh, having a sustainable process of national um, Reconciliation in Yemen, overcoming the heavy burden of NATO presence in uh, Afghanistan. And we are working on restoring the original JCPOA on Iran nuclear program, ensuring the comprehensive settlement on the Korean Peninsula. Many conflict situations in Africa require that we reject the temptation to play a zero-sum game there and, con and that outside players consolidate on the around the initiatives by the Afro, um, African Union. We are concerned by the situation in Kosovo, Bosnia, Herzegovina, where the United States and the EU are stubbornly leading to the destruction of the international legal basis uh, as we ha currently have it in Resolution 1244 and the a Peaceful Agreement. Madam President, at times like these, it's natural to seek wisdom from our predecessors. So in the pithy expression of the former Secretary General Doug Hammarskjöld, who remembered the horrors of World War, he said, and I quote, the UN wasn't created to take mankind to paradise, but rather to save humanity from hell. These are very topical words. They call upon us to understand our individual and collective responsibility for creating conditions for a peaceful and harmonious development for our future generations, and everyone need to show political will for that. When we are ready for such honest work, and we are convinced that the stability of the world order can be ensured exclusively through returning to the origins of the UN diplomacy, basing ourselves on the key principle of true democracy, the respect for the sovereign equality of states. I thank you. I thank the Minister for Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation. Welcome back. And that was uh, Russian uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in his address several days ago in New York City at the United Nations General Assembly 77th session. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Ayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, September 25th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to listen to the address 
of uh, the Chad uh, Foreign Minister. Uh, Chad, of course, uh, located in Central Africa, oil-producing state, uh, very strategically located, a former French colony. Let's listen to Chad at the uh, United Nations General Assembly just two days ago. Togo. I now give the floor to Her Excellency Watif Altijani Ahmed Kaboro, Minister for Foreign Affairs, African Integration and Chadians Abroad of Chad. Mr. President of the General Assembly, United Nations Secretary General, Heads of State and Delegation, Distinguished Participants, Ladies and Gentlemen, at the outset I would like to congratulate His Excellency Sava Kuroshi for his election as President of the 77th Session of the United Nations General Assembly and I wish to express to him our best wishes for success in leading this session. Allow me also to pay a well-deserved tribute to His Excellency Mr. Abdullah Shahid, the outgoing President of the General Assembly, for the vim and vigor which he put into the work of the 76th session. I welcome and pay tribute to the Secretary General's leadership, His Excellency Antonio Guterres, in these times of manifold and complex crises around the world, and we reiterate to him Chad's full friendship and support. Mr. President, this session, based on the theme, A Watershed Moment, Transformative Solutions to Interlocking Challenges, is beginning as humankind is facing numerous challenges unprecedented since the establishment of our organization. These are successive, serious, and complex challenges coming one after another, so many that we are struggling with our collective efforts to overcome them. This situation must tug on all of our consciences, and first and foremost, the United Nations, which was quite rightly established to address these situations around the world. For instance, we see tensions uh, related to the war in Ukraine and its repercussions on the affected civilian populations, as well as its impact around the world, both on our economies and our food and energy supply. Another one of these tests that we are facing was the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, which disrupted all of our lives. Today, the world is struggling to recover from the shock caused by COVID-19. It was an unprecedented challenge that we experienced and endured. We saw the loss of millions of human lives and harmful consequences on the health, social and economic levels. The recent lull shouldn't lead us to let down our guard. The lessons that we've learned from this fateful period should lead us to further consolidate multilateral cooperation because multilateralism was what was needed when states and organizations rallied around, came together and worked together to overcome this scourge. 
We hope to see further consolidation of this multilateral cooperation, particularly when it comes to tackling other persistent and recurrent crises and challenges such as wars, terrorism, climate change, health and food crises, poverty, just to cite a few. That's why this session is an opportunity to once again reaffirm our commitment to the ideals, principles and purposes of the United Nations Charter and to renew our collective commitment to make them a reality, particularly through the implementation of the recommendations made in the Declaration of Heads of State and Government at the commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the UN. It is time to act in order to make these goals a reality by correcting the many shortcomings that we have seen throughout the existence of our organization, which have allowed the problems undermining our international society and hamper the full achievement of the promises contained in the Charter to persist. In this regard, the Secretary General's initiative, Our Common Agenda, is a, an action plan aimed at strengthening and speeding up the implementation of multilateral agreements, particularly the 2030 Agenda, and to bring tangible change to people's lives. It's particularly welcome. It does indeed represent a great leap in the right direction. Chad supports this initiative fully and we hope that it will lead to promoting and strengthening a multilateralism that brings specific solutions to the major challenges of our time. A type of multilateralism that is able to have a real impact on people's lives, particularly in poor countries, and not a sham multilateralism that boils down to little more than hollow statements. In this regard, we would note that this year, seven years after the adoption of the 2030 Agenda and three years since the proclamation here in New York of the Decade of Action to speed up the achievement of the SDGs, the results from their implementation are far from being achieved, in particularly for poor countries. As was underscored by the Secretary General in his report on this, these goals will not be attained and many will fall by the wayside if we do not take bold action. Worse still, we could see a downward spiral and disillusionment taking root in the hearts of millions of people around the world. That's why, following on from the call of heads of state and government at the 75th anniversary of the United Nations, the Secretary-General's initiative, Our Common Agenda, gives us the hope that our legitimate expectations from international agreements and programs, particularly the 2030 Agenda, might be met. Mr. President, All of our action converges towards sustainable development, but development is only possible if there are lasting peace and security. That's why 
our state's efforts to achieve these aims require increased and constant support. International commitments made to that end through the 2030 Agenda, the Addis Ababa Action Agenda, the Paris Agreement, the New Urban Agenda, and all other international agendas must be honoured. And that, if we want to reach the ultimate goal of ensuring that no one is left behind and that we have a planet that we want to live on, which can be bequeathed surely and proudly to future generations. To do this, and in the face of worsening, compounding challenges that are shaking the very foundations of our collective action, it's crucial to keep up and strengthen existing commitments made by virtue of crucial solidarity linking our states with each other, particularly the rich and the poor. Firstly, through official development assistance and through the implementation of economic and financial empowerment initiatives and sustainable development policies for least developed countries and landlocked developing countries. Mr. President, despite, despite geopolitical divisions and diverse forms of obstacles, any trend or temptation towards reducing development assistance would be counterproductive. It would risk further worsening the crises around the world. That's why Chad calls on donor countries to keep up and expand development assistance. And this through the United Nations system, which provides invaluable relief to hundreds of millions of people around the world whose very survival depends on it. And while I am on this subject, I must also mention the issue of debt, which continues to represent too heavy a burden for many developing countries, including Chad. This burden truly strangles our economies, hampering post-COVID recovery or any economic recovery that might be strong enough to allow for the implementation of sustainable development programs. That's why debt relief remains an absolute imperative to drive economic recovery in low-income countries and to brighten the somber outlook for the global economy. With this in mind, Chad reiterates its support for the various appeals and initiatives to cancel or restructure debt for developing countries. Thus, I would also wish to appeal for the swift materialization of facilities already allocated to my country under these initiatives that have been launched by various multilateral bodies in order to allow us to, to respond to the pressing needs of our people who are already facing the combined effects of structural economic problems, humanitarian emergencies, insecurity caused by the terrorist threat, harmful effects from climate change, the food crisis, just to cite a few examples. Mr. President, 
Turning now to the political situation in my country, as you know, we have seen a political transition since the 20th of April 2021. I would like to tell you now that the process uh, this transition process is making satisfactory headway. The transitional military council led by General Mahamat Idris Debi Itno and the transitional government are committed to seeing it to its conclusion in order to allow our country to find lasting peace once again and to focus on the only worthwhile battle which is refounding Chad for the well-being of all Chadians. The national inclusive and sovereign dialogue which should lead to the holding of democratic, free and transparent elections is ongoing. It brings together the lifeblood of our country and and political and military movements who were included thanks to the Doha Agreement signed on the 8th of August 2022. From this rostrum, I would also once again like to express my profound, the profound thanks of the government and people of Chad to the government of the state of Qatar and to its, His Highness Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, the Emir of the state of Qatar, who hosted and facilitated the pre-dialogue between the Chadian government and the political, political and military groups. The national inclusive and sovereign dialogue represents an historic opportunity for Chadians to decide with full sovereignty as to the reform of their country. Political parties, civil society, political and military groups, professions, women, young people, persons with disabilities, the diaspora, traditional and religious leaders, law enforcement forces, all of Chadian society is being represented. This is an historic opportunity for Chadians to fully and sovereignly decide on the reform of their country. Any matters relating to national life are being discussed there openly, freely and sovereignly. Decisions and recommendations emerging from this dialogue will be binding on all. Chad counts on its partners for their support and financing for the implementation of the decisions and recommendations stemming from this process. Of course, a few political and military groups decided not to participate in this historic meeting. Efforts are ongoing to bring our brothers and sisters to reconsider their choice and to rejoin the path of dialogue. Mr. President, the situation in the Sahel region and the Lake Chad Basin principally affects security and development. It remains just as worrisome as ever because it continues to worsen due to the combined effects of several factors including institutional changes, climate change, a breakdown in military arrangements to tackle terror, the terrorist threat, unchecked illegal migration, and increasing uncurbed forms of illicit trafficking. In security terms, we note 
heightening terrorist activities in the Sahel, spreading relentlessly to neighboring regions in West Africa and the Horn of Africa, where we have seen terrorist attacks, particularly in Togo, Burkina Faso, and Benin. In light of the continued deterioration of the situation, Chad has continued to call for us to rethink our approach to the Sahel situation to better tailor our responses thereto. In this regard, Chad welcomes the United Nations and African Union initiative to conduct a joint strategic assessment in the Sahel in partnership with ECOWAS and the G5 Sahel. We also welcome the appointment of the former President of Niger, His Excellency Mr. Isufu Mohamedou, to lead the Independent Panel on Security and Development in the Sahel. This panel is tasked with leading this particular assessment. We have no doubt that President Isufu and his team will conduct a detailed appraisal of the ills blighting the sub-region and will suggest answers that will help us to recalibrate our response to this multidimensional crisis, which, despite all of the efforts made, continues to worsen year on year. It's true that the Sahel is replete with strategies, plans, programs, all aimed at combating this crisis. States and their bilateral and multilateral partners have rolled out several projects, projects over the last almost 10 years, which always fail to meet our expectations. The strategic assessment will allow us to understand the causes of this, even though we are all aware that the terrorism blighting the Sahel will only be beaten with a return to peace and state authority in Libya. Hence why the numerous initiatives adopted by member states both at the national and sub-regional level continue to suffer significantly from a lack of appropriate resources for their implementation. For instance, the G5 Sahel Joint Force struggles to obtain long-term predictable resources to conduct its activities. This is why, once again, Chad calls on its partners to support the G5 Sahel in order to save the region from a deeper descent into spiraling violence. I reiterate the call of the heads of state of the G5 Sahel for lasting and predictable funding from United Nations assessed contributions for the G5 Sahel Joint Force. Turning now to the internal G5 Sahel situation, we have seen the exit of our sister republic of Mali, and we particularly regret this withdrawal because Mali is a founding member of this organization and it belongs alongside us. We won't be able to defeat terrorism, stabilize and develop the Sahel without a common fight and without pooling our resources. We hope that our Malian brothers will reconsider their decision and rejoin our common organization. The G5 Sahel's doors remain wide open to them. Mr. President, 
turning now to the situation in Libya. Chad is particularly worried by the persistent political deadlock leading to the confrontations in Tripoli on the 26th and 27th of August this year. Chad urges Libyan political actors to favor dialogue in order to save the peace process and also to implement the electoral calendar that they have agreed. Chad encourages the international community, particularly the United Nations and the African Union, to pursue their efforts in order to narrow the space between the different parties to the conflict and to foster a political dialogue because the Libyan crisis can only be resolved through, by peaceful means through an inclusive political dialogue conducted by the Libyans themselves. The persistent conflict in Libya represents a constant threat for neighboring countries and the whole of the Sahel region. Chad has paid and continues to pay a high price. Here Chad reiterates once again to the Security Council and to the Secretary General its request for the implementation of the disarmament, demobilization and reinsertion reintegration program which represents a lasting solution to resolve the issue of Chadian nationals joining various Libyan military factions. With regard to Cuba, Chad calls for the lifting of the economic and commercial blockade imposed by the American government on this country which continues to weigh heavily on the lives of its population. In terms of the Security Council reform, the main body in charge of international peace and security, once again, Chad urges member states to move from rhetoric to action in order to make this reform a reality and to correct the historical injustice to the African continent that prevents this body from enjoying full and equal participation. Here, Chad will continue to provide its full support to the common African position as spelled out in the Ezzelwini consensus and other documents. In concluding, I wish every success to our work and I thank you very much. I thank the Minister for Foreign Affairs, African Integration and Chadians Abroad of Chad. Well, colleagues, we welcome back, and uh, we just heard uh, the address uh, to the United Nations General Assembly, 77th session taking place right now in New York City. An address from the Chadian uh, Foreign Minister, and before that, uh, we heard an address uh, from the Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov. Right now, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more uh, speeches uh, from uh, this week's United Nations General Assembly.
Hugh Mandel and um, from the, uh, the nation of uh, Jamaica in the Caribbean singing this song, uh, Why Do Black Men Fuss and Fight? You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, a special edition of our program for Sunday, September 25th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to go back uh, right now to the United Nations General Assembly 77th session uh, to hear the address by the Republic of Malawi President uh, Chakwera. Let's listen in. The Assembly will now hear an address by His Excellency Lazarus McCarthy Chakwera, President and Minister for Defense of the Republic of Malawi. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Lazarus McCarthy Chakwera, President and Minister for Defense of the Republic of Malawi, and to invite him to address the Assembly. Your Excellency, Mr. Sabakorossi, President of the 75th, 7th Session of General Assembly, your Excellency Mr. Antonio Guterres, UN Secretary General, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, leave no one behind. These four words are the promise at the heart of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. This is the principle this UN body committed to. But today, over three and a half years after that commitment was made, smaller nations and younger democracies around the world already feel like this is an empty promise. Today, not only do smaller nations and younger democracies like Malawi still feel left behind, but feel much farther behind than before. For instance, we all know that climate change is a global problem that will never be solved unless all nations solve it together. Yet months after Malawi and its SDG gains were set backwards by two tropical storms in quick succession, we have been left behind. We all know that pandemics are a global problem that will never be solved unless all nations solve it together. Yet in the rollout of vaccines and application of travel restriction, we have been left behind. We all know that regional insecurity is a global problem that will never be solved unless all nations solve it together. Yet, in the participation of the UN Security Council decisions that affect us, we have been left behind. And we all know that food shortage is a global problem that will never be solved until all nations solve it together 
Yet in the allocation of international facilities for agro-based and debt-distressed economies, we have been left behind. And as a result of our collect collective negligence, the global economy is now a house on fire. Yet we continue to use evacuation methods that rush some nations out to safety while leaving the rest of us behind to fend for ourselves in the burning building. But if we are truly one UN family, then leaving no one behind has to be practiced, not just preached. If we are truly one UN family, we must reject any attempts to politicize human suffering by lobbying us to refuse the help of those some find politically offensive. If we are truly one UN family, we must get out of political posturing and welcome more helping hands in resolving the problems the permanent UN Security Council members have sometimes created and which they have failed to solve alone, namely the failure to stop environmental degradation, the failure to prevent unjust wars, the failure to lift unsustainable debt burdens, the failure to prevent food insecurity, and the failure to contain pandemics. So, Mr. President, how do we get back on track? As I see it, with so many left behind, the only thing to do is to concentrate the UN's support on the most vulnerable who are lagging behind so that they can catch up. And Malawi stands ready to do its part in using any new support we get to make up for lost ground and catch up. On addressing the current global food crisis, Malawi is ready to catch up, having just joined the Feed the Future initiative, giving us access to new financing in the next few years to use Malawi's vast arable land and large volumes of fresh water to develop mega farms that will feed the world and lift millions out of our, uh, of our farmers out of subsistence living. And we are delighted that many private sector investors are flocking to us to join the agricultural revolution that is coming to Malawi, as well as investors in mining who know that the recent discovery in Malawi of the largest deposit of rutile in the world means that Malawi's economic rise is imminent. On climate change, mitigation and adaptation, Malawi is ready to catch up. So with COP27 around the corner in Chamashek, we call for action on the pledges already made so that Malawi and other least developed countries can build resilience to climate change induced events like floods, drought, pests, and cyclones all projected to become more frequent and more severe. These disasters are reversing years of developmental gains. Cyclones Anna and Gombe alone destroyed strategic infrastructure 
community assets and displaced thousands of households. And now a fifth of our people are at risk of acute food shortage as 3.6 million Malawians are facing hunger from next month until March. While we are preparing to deploy food assistance from our strategic reserves, we welcome your support with early warning systems for generating and managing climate data to reduce the impacts of disasters, as well as technical and financial capacity building in weather data analysis, modeling and forecasting to address barriers faced by farmers in accessing useful information. Our ongoing institutionalization of the climate or National Climate Change Fund should help in this regard, as will other measures for making climate financing predictable. Although Malawi and other least developed countries contribute the least to climate change, we are committed to the global climate agenda. Malawi's own ambition is to cut carbon emissions by half before the year 2040. And so we call for our support towards our efforts to transition to clean and green energy. On dealing with the evolving challenge of COVID-19, Malawi again is ready to catch up. Crucial to this effort is access to vaccines and your support to our efforts to catch up in this area will strengthen our vaccine delivery systems in general. But the critical need for us is strengthening health systems more broadly to build resilience against future pandemics, which calls for investments in health infrastructure and research. And in this context, the news that six African states have been chosen to produce messenger RNA vaccines in Africa is music to my ears. And I'm proud of Malawi's advocacy of this approach, as well as Malawi's role as a co-pioneer of the Accord for a Healthier World, announced by Pfizer in Davos four months ago. Aimed at bringing quality medicines to 1.2 billion people in low-income countries, these action-oriented partnerships are examples of the importance of SDG 17 in the advancement of all other sustainable development goals. We own the SDGs fully, and Malawi has so far undertaken two voluntary national reviews, VNRs, since 2020, to strengthen the national ownership of the same. But we see global public, uh, private-public partnerships as essential to reclaiming the gains we have lost on SDGs in the recent months of global crisis. It is because of our collaborative approach that we are on track in implementing 60% of the goals. And we are now in the process of reviewing the UN Sustainable Development Cooperation Framework for the period 2024 to 2028, so that it is responsive to national development plans 
linked to the delivery of the SDGs. And in that spirit of partnership, we also plan to make full use of the Doha Program of Action for LDCs to catch up on SDGs even more. And speaking of LDCs, it is my pleasure as chair to invite you all to the fifth United Nations Conference of Least Developed Countries to be held in Doha, Qatar in March 2023, where even more partnerships will be forged around creating solutions for vulnerable countries. One problem in desperate need of a solution for the most vulnerable LDCs is the unsustainable debt levels and distress they bear. It is not for nothing that the scriptures, which are regarded as sacred to more than half the world, describe unsustainable debt as a form of slavery. And as leaders of generations past work together to end old forms of slavery, we too must work together to end this new form. Recently, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund called on the world's major lenders to show leadership by relieving vulnerable countries of the debt that are shackling them because even loans that were given and received in good faith have become unsustainable in the recent and current climate relentless of unseen, uh, for unforeseen external shocks. So I join her in reiterating that call. And I commend the People's Republic of China for leading by example, by fulfilling the pledge it made at last year's forum, China-Africa Cooperation, FOCA, to forgive interest-free loans owned by 17 African countries. Let this be the beginning of a breaking of the chains holding vulnerable countries back, not the end. Because when we say that we are leaving no one behind, this is one way to put our money where our mouth is. Let me hasten to add that as president of a country that stands to benefit from debt relief measures, I do not regard my country as entitled to such. And I am in fact fully committed to be held accountable for the responsible use of these life jackets. I recognize that we too must prove ourselves worthy of such assistance by using it to cushion our citizens against the worsening financial volatility, trade costs, and human suffering that debt and other external factors are causing. There must, in fact, be no member state in our midst that is beyond scrutiny or exempt from accountability. For that to, be, to become a reality, U.S. President Biden's recent call for this U.N. family to defend the rights of smaller nations as equals of larger ones must not only be applauded, it must be uploaded. As African member states, we do not wish to gather here next year with no progress made on the African Union's Azuluan consensus 
which demands that two permanent seats with veto power and five non-permanent seats must go to Africa. So following the strong signal of support from the U.S. government, we expect to see this matter on, on its way to the United Nations Security Council to be tabled, to be heard, and to be settled. That is the U.N. we want. That is the U.N. the world needs a reformed UN that practices the equality and democracy it preaches, a reformed UN that is not constantly polarized by nuclear power stuck in Cold War mindsets, a reformed UN that uses its multilateral muscle to give equal attention to the interlocking issues of public health, food security, insecurity, climate change, and conflict regardless of where they emerge or who they affect, a reformed UN that gives equal weight to all its members who give it meaning, not just those who give it money. Because we are one humanity facing the same storm in the same boat. And in that spirit of one humanity, let me conclude by expressing my country's deepest condolences to the British royal family and the government and people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, who was laid to rest on the eve of this Assembly's high-level debate week. Mr. Sabakorossi, President of the 77th Session of the United Nations General Assembly, I thank you for this opportunity, and I congratulate you on your appointment, just as I wish outgoing President Abdallah Shahid, the very best in his continued service to humanity and the cause to leave no one behind. Thank you all for listening. On behalf of the Assembly, I wish to thank the President and Minister for Defence of the Republic of Malawi for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. We just heard the President of the Republic of Malawi in Southern Africa, Lazarus uh, query uh, addressing the United Nations General Assembly 77th session that's taking place uh, this week uh, in uh, the United Nations headquarters in New York City. Right now we want to move to another Southern African state, the Republic of Namibia, to hear uh, President Hodge Gengab and his address uh, at uh, the United Nations General Assembly. L'Assemblée va maintenant entendre l'allocution de Son Excellence Ed Gengob, président de la République de Namibie. Je prie le protocole de bien vouloir accompagner Son Excellence. Au nom de l'Assemblée générale, je tiens à remercier le président de la République de Namibie. Au nom du président. Au nom de l'Assemblée générale, j'ai l'honneur de souhaiter la bienvenue à Son Excellence, M. H. Gengob, président de la République de Namibie, et je l'invite à prendre la parole devant l'Assemblée. Mr. President, 
Your Excellencies, Heads of State and Government, Mr. Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, Namibia congratulates His Excellency Shapa Korosi on your election as President of the 77th session of this August Assembly. Please be assured of Namibia's full support as you provide leadership during your tenure. Allow me to also extend appreciation to your predecessor, His Excellency Abdallah Shahid, for his sterling stewardship as President of the 76th session of the General Assembly. The President, since attaining our political independence 32 years ago, we are proud of the work we have undertaken towards the second phase of our struggle for economic independence. During this period, we have built a strong foundation for our governance architecture. We have emphasis on strengthening processes, systems, and institutions. Given these advances in effective governance, we are optimistic in our quest to deal with the triple challenges of inequality, unemployment, and poverty. Our impact plan, the Harambe Prosperity Plan 2, which is accelerating the implementation of the national development plans, is fast-tracking our efforts towards Vision 2030. Since my term of office is coming to an end on 20th March 2025, as a nation and as a nation with a constitution that binds the head of state to two term limits, we have set in motion a process for an orderly succession to continue with our peaceful development. The ruling party, SWAPO, of which I am the head, is currently conducting primaries. There is a real possibility that the next candidate of the SWAPO party for the national presidential elections will be a woman or a young male, of whom the male is from the generation that was never in exile. The presence of women in the line of succession is a demonstration of the strides we have made in gender equality, with women presentation at 40% in the National Assembly. Moreover, 90% of our banks are helmed by women. Namibia is a child of international solidarity, midwived by the United Nations. Therefore, we are convinced of our solidarity and partnership as critical enablers of our developmental aspirations. Allow me at this juncture to thank the Secretary General for his comprehensive report on our common agenda which carries clear recommendations on how to advance the SDGs and all existing global agreements through multilateralism, with the UN at the center of our efforts. I commend the Secretary General 
for his visionary leadership in proposing that we should meet in a summit of the future to reflect on challenges and opportunities that await current and future generations. Namibia supports the convening of this important summit at the earliest opportune time. Over the past few months, it has been encouraging to note the concerted efforts to shed a spotlight on transforming education and advancing SDG 4. Education is a sector that Namibia has consistently been prioritizing through the allocation of the resources, both human and financial, and the consistent prioritization of policy development. In the context of the recently concluded transformation of Education Summit, Namibia commits to transformative leadership, ensuring access to inclusive digital technologies and developing a strategy for innovative financing and resource mobilization. In Namibia, the education sector receives the la largest share of budgetary support, equivalent to 8% of GDP and almost a quarter of the total national budget. The Namibian government offers free primary and secondary education, which demonstrates our commitment to prioritizing and expanding access to education for all. Furthermore, we are proud of the recent landing of the Google Equinor subsea cable, which lent itself greatly to changing Namibia's digital transformation landscape and narrowing our digital divide in line with our commitment to leveraging the fourth industrial revolution. In Namibia, we have set up the fourth industrial revolution task force, which recently made recommendations as to how Namibia can strengthen domestic capabilities to strive to derive optimal gains from fourth industrial revolution. In line with the recommendations of the task force, the government is currently developing a consolidated national fourth industrial strategy to provide overarching direction and multiple multi-sectoral planning. The strategy will prioritize education reform to close to fourth industrial revolution skills gap, cyber security, and expansion of ICT infrastructure and services. Mr. President, global debt is at an unprecedented level and interest rates are rising. This reality limits our fiscal space. As we talk about our collective aspirations, we should remain acutely aware of the vulnerabilities facing developing countries. Namibia's classification as an upper-middle-income country presents challenges with regard to mobilizing resources to finance our development goals. As I have been saying, taking our GDP and dividing it by a small population, thus deriving at high per capita income without doubt is flawed formula that requires urgent consideration. The formula does not take into account the vast income disparities between the wealthy white 
and the poor blacks, which is a consequence of 100 years of colonialism, colonialism and apartheid occupation. However, I am pleased to hear that a number of developing and developed countries are in agreement with this unfair classification, which denies countries like Namibia access to soft loans and grants, which are necessary to fight inequality and to lift many, many out of poverty. The choice of the theme of this session, quote, solutions through solidarity, sustainability, and science, unquote, calls on us to deal with the issues that affect us all. Therefore, I'm confident that the unfair classification of countries like Namibia as other middle-income countries will enjoy priority. Over the past few months, we have witnessed stark geopolitical tensions, a reminder of the fragility of our world order. Threats to peace and security come at a great cost to the men, women, and children trapped in such situations. The Russia-Ukraine conflict is now in its seventh month with serious consequences for food and energy supply chains. Namibia believes that dialogue is the condition sine qua non for the peaceful solution, resolution of any conflict. Our United Nations was created for the maintenance of peace and security and should lead a peaceful resolution in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Namibia is a member of the AU Peace and Security Council and chair of the SADC organ on politics, defense, and security cooperation, continues to demonstrate its commitment to regional and continental stability by advocating for the advancement of infrastructure for peace, democracy, and protection of human rights. In this regard, as a new chairman of the SADC organ on politics, defense, and security cooperation, I'm calling for peaceful general elections in the Kingdom of Lesotho on the 7th of October 2022. SADC is also seized with the developments in the Kingdom of East Watini and the Republic of Mozambique. In that vein, I have commenced a process of dialogue with the leaders of Eswatini, Lesotho, and Mozambique in order to ensure the successful implementation of SADC decisions for peace and stability to prevail in our region. I always say inclusivity spells harmony and exclusivity spells conflict. Africa is a continent of 1.2 billion citizens and the exclusion of Africa from the Security Council is an, is an injustice. For as long as the Council fails to reflect in stature and composition current global realities, it will not be able to adequately address global concerns. We therefore reiterate our call for the reform of the Security Council in line with the common African position. Mr. President, self-determination is a human right. The continued injustice meted out against the people of Palestine are a reminder 
of the urgent need to start implementing the two-state solution as the only viable alternative that can end inequality and bring peace to both the people of Palestine and Israel, and indeed the region as a whole. In the same vein, the lack of progress in implementing UN resolutions to resolve the question of Western Sahara should, should be something that we must all have a collective shame for. Namibia pledges unwavering solidarity for nations that continue to bear the heavy burden of sanctions. Namibia reiterates its long-standing call for the lifting of the unjust embargo against Cuba. I met, I met a 50-year-old young Cuban man who has not known anything but the sanctions. Since he was born, it's a sanctions. How long are we going to continue with that? We are talking about building the peace in the world. But how can a country be sanctioned for such a long time? And children born don't know anything but sanctions. Please, it is time that sons and daughters of Cuba are given right, their right to a decent life, freedom, and embargo that denies them their right to develop their own country should be stopped now. Equally, we call on the lifting of sanctions against the Republic of Zimbabwe. Why are the sanctions in place for a country which is making progress at all levels? President Emerson Menangago and the people of Zimbabwe have made laudable progress and reforms. We should be given a chance to succeed without the weight of sanctions. President, the health of our planet is in serious jeopardy. Our home is on fire. We are experiencing unprecedented impacts of climate change, including severe droughts and ravaging field fires. Time is a luxury we do not have. We have to act decisively to reduce carbon emissions as our contribution to the preservation of our planet and the people. Namibia, like many developing countries, remains vulnerable to the asymmetrical impacts of climate change. Therefore, at COP27, Namibia plans to announce major developments in its ambitions to decarbonize global hard to abate sectors through the production of green hydrogen. Furthermore, the first hydrogen to power project in Africa is expected to be operational by 2024 in the town of Swagopmund in Namibia. This is an example of what is possible when we pull together in the same direction. Our ambitions are not only necessary to mitigate the ravaging, ravaging impacts of climate change, but are also a critical component of our post-COVID-19 economic recovery. Therefore, Namibia remains ready to work with the international community to ensure the most optimal utilization of its natural resources to combat climate change. A just energy transition is about fair opportunities for developing nations to sustainably access natural endowments at their disposal. Namibia has recently discovered promising deposits of hydrocarbons and is exploring significant deposits of rare earth metals. As part of our goal, 
to ensure sustainable utilization of our natural resources, I recently launched the Velvichia Fund, our nation's sovereign wealth fund. The fund is a demonstration of our commitment to fiscal prudence and sustainable resource management for current and future generations. Mr. President, in conclusion, today on the 21st of September 2022, we are convening in this chamber on the United Nations International Day of Peace under the theme, quote unquote, and racism built peace. Peace is a wonderful gift for the fragile one if it is not handled properly. Peace is more than the absence of war. Peace is about inclusivity and development of all nations. Our United Nations as the premier guarantor of multilateralism is our best bet to ensure a peaceful and prosperous humanity. Namibia will continue to, play, to place a high premium on the noble aspirations of the United Nations as a beacon of hope and equality, hope and equality of all nations. As a beneficiary of successful multilateral efforts, which we hold in high regard the convening power of this August Assembly and recommit to working with fellow member states to change the world for the better. I thank you very much. That was uh, President Hajj Gengab of the Republic of Namibia in Southern Africa, speaking at the United Nations uh, General Assembly, 77th session, uh, taking place uh, this week uh, in New York City. And our final uh, speech uh, for today uh, will come from President Emerson Mnangagwa of the Republic of Zimbabwe, also in Southern Africa. Uh, this is his address to the United Nations General Assembly, 77th session. The Assembly now will hear an address by His Excellency Emerson Dambuzo Mnangagwa, President of the Republic of Zimbabwe. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Emerson Dambutso Nanangwagwa, President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, and to invite him to address the Assembly. Your Excellency, Mr. Karosi, President of the 77th Session of the General Assembly. Your Excellency, Mr. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, Your Majesties, Your Excellencies, Heads of State and Government, distinguished guests, it is my singular honor to deliver this statement to this august assembly. Allow me to congratulate you, Mr. President, on your election as the President of the 77th Session of the United Nations General Assembly. Please be assured of Zimbabwe's full support as you guide our deliberations during this current session. 
I also pay special tribute to your predecessor, Mr. Abdullah Shahid, for leading the 76th session of the United Nations General Assembly as the world grappled with a plethora of challenges. We commend him for the President of the General Assembly's Fellowship of Hope Initiative towards enhancing youth interest, engagement, and commitment in the work of the United Nations. This will go a long way towards safeguarding the interests of future generations as embodied in today's youth. Their voices must be heard across our governments and within the United Nations. Zimbabwe is privileged to be among the pioneering beneficiaries of this program. Mr. President, delivering the 2030 Agenda remains an urgent priority for us all. Our theme for this session in the court, a watershed moment, transformative solution to interlocking challenges, end of court, captures the importance of scaling up our actions informed by the state of our world. The number of persons exposed to food insecurity continues to increase. Meanwhile, the stages of conflict and climate change have become major drivers of migration and refugees. The ever-looming threat associated with the Triple C crisis of COVID-19, conflict, and climate change has placed upon us an enormous responsibility to confront these interlocking challenges by strengthening multilateralism and solidarity. Terrorism, biodiversity, loss, desertification, pollution, and cybercrime, among other challenges, reinforce the urgent need to implement the inclusive and transformative solutions that leave no one and no place behind. This 77 session comes in the wake of debilitating impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic that overstretched our health care systems and severely exposed the disparities between developed and developing countries with regards to vaccine access. Africa is among the most affected. The lessons from the pandemic should inspire and enable the United Nations General Assembly to urgently scale up means to build multi-pronged capacities that must guide our collective response to future pandemics and other global challenges. Despite the illegal economic sanctions imposed on Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe successfully implemented its COVID-19 national response strategy, encouraged largely by our own internal resources and institutional capacities.
the proactive approach by my administration enabled the country to achieve high vaccination rates which extended to children up to 12 years. Meanwhile, our focus on the construction, rehabilitation, and modernization of health facilities across the country, coupled with the enhanced capacities around biotechnology and the pharmaceutical value chain, attests to my government's determination to realize universal health coverage. Mr. President, lifting many more people out of poverty and into a higher quality of life must remain at the core of both United Nations activities and the programs and projects of our respective countries. Zimbabwe has made significant strides towards ending poverty and hunger. This has seen the implementation of various policies and programs to support and empower communal and small-scale farmers. At the household level, the provision of agriculture inputs, equipment and technical support to farmers, especially the vulnerable, has contributed to household and national food and nutrition security. However, in 2022, mid-season drought and tropical cyclones regrettably reduced the overall performance of the agricultural sector. To this end, the climate change conundrum has continued to be an albatross. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement should remain the primary platform for negotiating our collective global response to climate change. All measures taken to achieve the targets and commitments set under the Paris Agreement have to be implemented. Furthermore, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in light of the different national circumstances must also be reflected. Financing for climate change has remained inadequate, leaving the scope for effective and just transition to renewable energy among developing countries under serious threat. It is our hope that at COP27 in Egypt later this year, the developed countries will deliver more concrete action on climate change, not just for mitigation targets, but also in relation to adaptation, loss and damage, climate-specific finance, technology transfer, and capacity building. In our case, Zimbabwe is making concerted and deliberate efforts to integrate climate action into our national policies, strategies, and planning. This includes strengthening resilience and the adaptive capacity of the most vulnerable in our society. Additionally, 
my government is implementing an ambitious program to increase the number of dams for irrigation. The program is expected to create green belts across the country as we reduce dependency on rain-fed agricultural activities while enhancing export-laid production and productivity. Our comprehensive agriculture transformation strategy is focused on increasing production and productivity across the agriculture spectrum. This was instrumental in our unprecedented realization of national wheat self-sufficiency as well as increased exports in horticulture. The provision of technical extension services for improved land and water use has seen widespread adoption of climate smart agricultural innovations with evident upward increase of incomes among communal and smallholder farmers as well as women and youth in agriculture. Mr. President, Zimbabwe is committed to Agenda 2030 and has to this end mainstreamed the 17 SDGs into our National Economic Development Blueprint. The National Development Strategy, we acknowledge the support of the United Nations in the alignment of this strategy to the Sustainable Development Goals. Economic reforms have been implemented, resulting in significant progress in sectors such as agriculture, manufacturing, mining and tourism. Our Zimbabwe is open for business mantra has fostered strong partnership between the government and the private sector for inclusive and sustainable development. Massive infrastructure development projects, which include the dams, energy plants, and the roads, have broadened our national economic asset base, as well as production and productivity enablers, while enhancing regional connectivity and integration. The current global financial architecture has demonstrated its inadequacies to address the challenges that confront us. Increasing and unsustainable debt burden, prohibitive cost of borrowing, illicit financial flows, and exploitation of natural resources from developing countries have all combined to relegate developing countries to the periphery of the global financial system. There is therefore need for a global financial system which is just, more inclusive and responsive to the challenges we face. Equally, the international trade architecture under the World Trade Organization has remained largely exclusive and indifferent to the needs of developing countries. The African continental free trade area is thus expected to be the panacea for Africa to trade and stimulate economic growth and development. The AFCFTA must be complemented as we strive 
to improve production and trade in goods and services. Liberalization of services and the strengthening of competition policy and intellectual property rights, as well as the adoption of digital trade, should also be enhanced. Mr. President, education is a key driver of sustainable development with a direct impact on SDG4, SDG5, on gender equality, and SDG17 on partnerships for the goals. Zimbabwe has embarked on reforms based on our heritage-based education 5.0 model, which emphasizes on science, technology, innovation, and industrialization. These are indeed necessary tools to leap forward the modernization and industrialization of our countries in the developing world. My government is equally providing quality, inclusive, and accessible education through the rollout of a phased free primary school education system. The Transforming Education Summit during this high-level week is a timely and a welcome development which should help revitalize the education sector, more so after COVID-19 induced disruptions. My country knows that more work needs to be done globally to close the gender gaps that are often aggravated in terms of crisis. Opportunities are being created for all Zimbabweans, especially for women and the youth, to realize their individual and their collective potential. Milestones have thus been achieved. Welcome back. And uh, that uh, was uh, the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, Emerson Mnangagwa, speaking at the United Nations General Assembly, 77th session. Uh, which is uh, ongoing in New York City. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for uh, today. Uh, We've heard addresses uh, from the Republic of Zimbabwe, the Republic of Namibia, and uh, the Republic of Malawi, as well as Chad and the Russian Federation. And if you want to uh, stay abreast of uh, developments within the African world and the international community, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire. Uh, that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And... Um, by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to uh, today's program for Sunday, uh, September 25th, uh, 2022, but well over 1,100 other archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, we are here every week uh, at uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, You can... uh, Notify other potential listeners uh, in regard uh, to our broadcast. These broadcasts can also be shared uh, via email uh, by posting on other blogs and websites 
as well as being uh, shared uh, through social media networks uh, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. And we're going to close out our program uh, with the music of John Coltrane and Kenny Burrell. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.